How long do you think Beatlemania will last? As long as you all keep coming. The Beatles are great! Bobby Edwin says so! I can't believe I get to walk into Abbey Road and the place just breathes and lives music and it'll breathe and live music for as long as that building's there. I think the art of record producing is very like that of a film or television director. You've got to get the best out of the person. There have been huge crowds of teenage girls outside complaining that they don't want to mob you, they just want to speak to you. What do you think about this? Do you want to talk to them? Welcome to Great Minds. I'm your host, Matt Schechner. Today we have an amazing guest, Giles Martin. Giles is the son of legendary Beatles producer, Sir George Martin. He's been immersed in music his entire life. Self-taught, his father, interestingly, did not want him to go into the music business and actually thought he wouldn't be good enough. In the end, when Giles was with his dad near death at the age of 90, his dad told him, you're not only good enough, but you were better than I was. And they enjoyed a wonderful relationship, as you'll hear. Giles has incredible stories of his work, remixing all the Beatles' work, stripping it down, putting it back together. Giles was the mastermind behind the incredible collaboration between the Beatles and Cirque du Soleil for the Beatles' Love Show, which launched in 2009 and was absolutely incredible and has been seen to this very day by billions and billions. He did the music for Rocketman in 2019, an Academy Award-winning film, is at the top of his game, has incredible stories, and he carries on the legacy of his dad and then some. Enjoy our time with Giles Martin. Let's start in, in an unexpected place. I want to start with your project in 2019, working on the film Rocketman. And, oh, yeah. uh, and not begin with what you are best known for. Of course, we'll talk a lot about the Beatles. Um, but how did that project uh, wind up in your lap? And uh, tell me about that. Well, funny enough, it's all, the life is full of connections and, you know, and luck, I suppose. And there's a very talented director producer called Matthew Vaughan, who I was at school with. He was the year below me at school. And um, he approached me. He made these films, the Kingsman films. And the first Kingsman film, he had a scene, which is a very violent scene in a church with Colin Firth uh, killing about 45 people. And he had problems with music. In it. And he phoned me up because we were at school together. And he said, listen, can you help me with this? And I had an idea about... Uh, remix and mashing up the guitar solos from Freebird. And and using that as a sort of soundtrack. And I did that and it was successful. He loved it. And then we sort of worked on another couple of things. And then he bought the rights to Elton's biography, Rocket Man, and phoned me up and said, you know, do you want to do the music for Rocket Man? And I said, I said, you know, yeah. He goes, how does Elton feel? He goes, I spoke to Elton and Elton, I actually worked with my dad with Elton. He did Climb of the Wind, the Princess Diana single. Elton John, who's rewritten his famous song, Candle in the Wind, that was written for Marilyn Monroe. 
for today and was here yesterday afternoon. And, uh, and so I knew Elton and he knew me and, and that they asked me to do it. And then I met Dexter Fletcher, who became was the director. And then I met Taron Edgerton. Who we, and with, they're actually, the three of us become very close now. And it was just, a, it was an amazing project. It was, I was, I found it kind of, um, I, I'd had not really much previous world of film. And then suddenly they gave me the job of, you know, looking after the music of a musical that uh, with everyone's heads and their bets on. It was kind of a, a stupid decision on their part, but it, it all worked out well in the end. Well, it sure did. And um, did you enjoy that process different than working in the studio in a more traditional way? Yeah, you know, I did. And it was very much like doing, you know, the, I sort of, I created, you know, along, along with my dad, but it was mainly my work, I say, without too much arrogance, the love show in Vegas, um, creating the sound bed. And it was a lot like that, where you're linking visual to sound, visual to music. And, you know, like my father, you sort of try and paint pictures with sound anyway. And if you're trying to uh, have empathy to to the picture, you can kind of push it further. And it suited me. It suits me. Enough, recently, I've been offered a lot more films. So I've been offered quite a few films rec- this this year. No, 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 you know, don't know what will happen now. But, um, but, uh, but it it suits me. I I love you know, for instance, with Rocket Man, there's a scene. If anyone watches, there's a scene where Elton sort of tries to commit suicide he jumps into the swimming pool i'm gonna fucking kill myself and we do a scene which goes all the way from the swimming pool to him being dragged out having his stomach pumped for the you know drugs coming out of his stomach and then he ends up on stage and then he ends up shooting up like a rocket into his private jet and for that, they gave me a um, just a picture board, and I created the music and arranged the song according to how I thought it should sound to fit the picture. And then they shot around that. So that quite often, they Dexter was shooting around the music that I'd laid down. And so it was, a, it was kind of a it's just the creation side. It's it's you know making trying to make things sound good is actually quite simple. It doesn't push you, you know. You 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 know. But it's very rare that I I might do something that you may not like, but I won't do something that really sounds bad. <laughs> and it's you know and, and 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 but actually creating something is much more challenging and more spiritual in a way if that makes sense so now that you mention it i i have been lucky enough to have seen the love show in las vegas which i guess you opened up in 2009 yeah and and i see what you're saying now because the music and rocket man and that juxtaposition with the imagery is done in a very different way than a typical biopic or even a concert film. And so I see now that parallel between the two. Yeah, it was, that's what it was similar to me for. I mean, no one would think that I've, I've actually scored some films. I've written some music for films before, but it was more like love than anything else because of the, I think the dreamlike quality that, you know, from the word go, you know, I think, um, you know, Dexter said to me and I want, you know, I want, you know, the crowd to lift off their feet when they went out and breaks through America. I want, you know, we want, we want to do these amazing things. At one stage we had a scene where pinball wizard, uh, uh, and all playing Elton was going to be fired around a pinball machine as he fired from, you know, like a ball. And there was all this crazy stuff and that kind of crazy suits me. I kind of, I'm a very staid, I sound like a very staid English person, but a very warped mind. And it kind right, of suits right. me. This, this kind of, I, you know, I, I, I love that. I love that juxtaposition between, 
you know, pushing things. Now, doing a, and listen, there's been some great, you know, Bohemian Rhapsody and Star is Born and sort of musicals of that genre. They're, you know, they're brilliantly done, but they're, they're, they are, they are essentially, when the songs are done, they're either in concert or in a studios. That's it. With Rocket Man, we didn't have any of that. It became a musical. And, uh, and, and that, that, in a way, there's no right or wrong in this. It just, that's more challenging and, and pushes the boundaries more. I find I bumped into a, a colleague in this great, this sort of small world who worked on Greatest Showman. And I thought he did a really good, I thought great. I mean, my kids and my wife love Greatest Showman. They loved it more than I did, but I really appreciate what he did. And he goes, I didn't know you did Rocket Man. Rocket Man was perfect, he said to me. I was like, oh my God. And he cried. He goes, because it, because it, because the music was the, the music pushed the story. And I was like, oh, well, that's what I was trying to do. And it was, you know, it's, it's, it's that, it's that, it's that challenge you're looking for all the time. Yeah. And I guess no matter how deep a body of work we have at any age, we love to hear that validation just as people. Oh, listen, we live, we live in a, the, the artist community are all bravado. We're all bluster. And we live in a world where, you know, we're completely insecure and, and you, and you live off the, snap of oxygen the intake of breath you get from someone like that saying to you and then you hold then you hold your breath for another three to four weeks or so before you can get another breath in and it's funny i mean you know i've been listening i just um i've been remixing a rolling stones album goat's head soup and i've been listening to masters and i'm thinking you know i'm thinking is this any good we got to the stage where i'm on the worst publicist on earth by the way which coming it's coming out i'm thinking you know, have I done a good job of this? That's what that's the way we live our lives. It's been completely neurosis. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I heard a great podcast interview Conan O'Brien with Judd Apatow, who's got an incredible body of comedy work. And with each project, he has that insecurity. Is this funny? Am I funny? You know, and his body of work in comedy in America is incredible. So. I think it's what tortures people. It's that, but it's it's it, you know it's kind of indulgent. It's kind of indulgent. You know that. I mean, I remember starting out, and I think that's when I was George Martin's son. Or I still have George Martin's son, and you um, and you you know you work as a runner in studios, and you hope that in those days it was a tape hop or assistant engineer. Maybe I get my name on an album you know, as an assistant engineer, or maybe you know something, and then your name goes on an album, and then. It's not good enough. It's not enough. It's like, you know, it's like eating, it's like eating polystyrene. It's not, you know, you want to carry on and you want to, you, you want the main course. And then, you know, you never think you win a Grammy, you win a Grammy. And it's like, well, that didn't taste, that didn't taste how I expect to do. I want, I need another Grammy. I need not. And you know, that sort of thing that happens. It's like this, this, this insane progression. You have to step out of it. You have to sort of, otherwise you, you do go mad. Yeah. So let's go back. You mentioned, and we talked a little bit about love. One of the great uh, opportunities we ever had on our stage at Advertising Week was we had Danielle Lamar from Cirque du Soleil, who I'm sure you know. I know very well. And Danielle told the story of how love came together. And the story crescendoed, as he told it, they were in a room with Guy and with Olivia Harrison, I suppose Danny Harrison, Ringo Paul, and Yoko Ono to all make that deal and to get everyone's agreement. Um, what is your recollection of how it came together? And and I know that was a great joy that you had to work on with your father. It was a huge privilege.
We spend a lot of time working on Octopus's Garden for the show because it's Ringo's song. It has drums from lovely Rita Mita made. It has the Helter Skelter at the end. It has Good Night at the beginning. We felt as though the vibrancy was the key in the refresh. We now have a third plane because the floor now is a projection surface. And so you can immerse people much more in the garden. And it's great. I'll tell you the, um, the story as I see it. Controversial though may, may, may it sound. It all, it all started, my, my dad wanted to make a, um, a ballet of his music he did for Yellow Submarine. And he, um, he'd, he'd approached this guy, Matthew Bourne, who's a famous ballet director, and he approached Lee Hall, funny enough, who's the guy who wrote the script for Rocket Man the, as the worlds collide. And he asked me whether I would do it with him because that stage we were working very closely together. And I said, I didn't like the idea of doing a ballet. I found it a little bit too fey in a way. I didn't. And there was a, there was a, um, a theater group called Della Guarda who were playing at the Roundhouse in London who were very edgy. Sure. That ran in New York as well. Yeah, and they became Fuerza Bruta, actually. They, 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 but anyway, we met with the producers of Della Guarda. We said, why don't you do Yellow Submarine with Della Guarda with, like, you know, Turks with machine guns coming out of their stomachs and, you know, all that sort of crazy stuff in Yellow Submarine. And we planned, and we actually booked the roundhouse. And George Harrison, they, it, we got permission off the Beatles. And then George Harrison said, why are we doing this with them? And why are we doing this with... Um, Della Guarda when I'm really good friends with Guy and him and Guy were very close friends and so they shifted and actually Neil Aspinall phoned up my dad and said listen George I know we said yes but the answer is no we're not going to do it and my dad was annoyed and and they sort of fired us from the project if you like which is fair enough and the Cirque de Cirque de much bigger unit so they went off with Cirque and they created something. They started creating something. Guy is very much into dance music, and he got a bunch of Montreal DJs to remix the Beatles songs, which the Beatles then heard, and they went, "Oh my God, we can't do this!" And they then brought us back on board. And what happened was, my father, sadly, at that stage, was 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 he had cancer. He was he wasn't well. You know, he lived for another ten years afterwards. And I just had some success, and so I met Neil Aspinall in Apple. And so, so Cirque and the Beatles had signed the deal, but then they had they didn't know what to do with the music. And I said to Neil, because there's a lot of this going on, there's a lot of the mashup stuff going on at the time. Um, I said, well, so I reckon I, I reckon I can create a show the Beatles never played by just chopping up the Beatles tapes. Um, and he goes, okay, I'll give you three months, and you're not getting paid. And they put me in a cupboard in Abbey Road. I didn't have speakers to begin with, actually. And I created the mashups that became the show, the, the beginning with Get Back, drums drums going, drums from the end going to Get Back, and then put the piano at the end. And my dad came out of hospital. He was, I was seeing him at the same time. He came out of hospital. I started playing him stuff. And he thought, he liked it, but he thought I was being a little bit too um, sacrilegious, I suppose. And I think he just thought, because he had history with them, from obviously a long time back, but he had history with them. He thought that this would be the the thing they would hate the most. They would hate anyone screwing around with the music. And um, Paul came in and I did a remix of I'm the Walrus, but it wasn't that interesting. He goes, you should really push the boundaries more. And I played him 
Tomorrow Never Knows with um, Within You Without You mashed up, which my dad didn't like he, at the time. And he admits he didn't like it. And he loved it afterwards. And uh, Paul goes, this is what you should be doing. And that gave us license. And that's kind of how the show was created. The show was created from one idea being cancelled and the other idea taking its place. Um, and it's funny, in, you know, I love the fact that I'll get into trouble for this, but, you know, I love the fact that it was always we, we talked about this, you know, the, the spiritual connection between uh, between George and Guy. They just loved partying in fast cars. You know, that was you know, they used to, you know, they used to, they used to, George used to go to, to Guy's uh, um, uh, Montreal Grand Prix party, which was apparently was amazing. Um, but it was a, it was a fantastic journey. You know, the best thing about the journey and the show was called Love was the fact that the way it worked is I would then, I was then, you know, once I got the green light and they allowed me to start playing around with the masters, um, I decided I really believed I was going to get fired. I think that's always been my, my process in life is, is that I just think, well, I might as well do as much as I can before I get fired. You know, that's, that's why, like the rocket man film is the same thing. Okay. But you see this one, well, who would employ me? I'm going to get fired. So you just try and push the boundaries as much as you can. Um, and, I, but I thought, you know what, the Beatles tapes had never been backed up. They they they, they reside in Abbey Road, but they'd never been properly put onto a hard drive. So what I did is I transferred them all. As I transferred them, I, I'd made notes, and then I'd sit with my dad and listen to and ask him questions about it. And we had this sort of amazing bonding moment. He came out of hospital. He was better. We had an amazing bonding moment where it was like going through – it's a bit – going through, you know, your father's belongings, but in a very deep way. And that was the thing I took because I just thought I might as well go through all this and make notes and make sure I leave it and leave it in better order, better order than I started with. Do you know what I mean? That's the thing. That's that's what you try and do. Um, and and it was just the most amazing creative journey that sort of changed my life in lots of ways. Well, for me, I mean, I, obviously, I, I I was the person who started the whole thing off, but I'd, I'd forgotten about a lot of the stuff. And this young lad here was delving into a, a, a barrel of goodies and bringing out bits and pieces, which I hardly recognize sometimes. And he was playing with it. I pretty much listened to everything. We listened to everything together and made notes on everything I heard. And made notes especially. I made a little, you know, red notes on things that no one would recognize from the masters. That was my... You mean unreleased? unreleased no, no, they're, they're, they're there. People never, like, there's a thing, cry, baby, cry, of... John Lennon laughing and sucking in an accordion playing a sea shanty, which is not is on the master tape, but no one ever hears it. And there's laughter. And in fact, in Lady Madonna, I've got them talking about making a video, you know, on the, on the master tape. So it's just really making lists of things that would be unusual for people to hear and then thinking about where they're going to go in the show. And when Paul heard the sh- watched the show and heard it, he actually turned to Giles and said, what was it at the end there? What did you use there? He couldn't suss out for himself what he'd done. It'll be interesting you hearing it because you're obviously a Beatles expert. See if you can... Myself and my dad went on stage and we were thanked by, you know, Ringo and Paul and Olivia and Yoko. Um, and we were uh, arm in arm together. Um, and there's a lot of, you know, and Dominic Champagne, great name, who's the director, was became, you know, it was the three of us. And we stood firm, we stood together and we argued and, and it, you know, and the show's now made, I think, a billion and a half dollars or something. It's been seen by 8 million people. Um, it was, it, yeah. But I remember the things I remember, things, uh, things like Paul came 
to see where we were with the show, and he hadn't he hadn't come to see at all. He hadn't really been exposed to it. And he came, and uh, and we sat with him. And my dad flew over. My dad wasn't in Vegas that much. My dad came over, and and we started running the show. And the show broke within about forty five seconds. Like the whole thing just collapsed. And and I was I was playing him. I was trying to play him the stuff, and I was just thinking, if he doesn't like what I've done, what am I going to do? You know, what am I, this is too late. What am I going to do? And he and he was and he really and he loved it. He loved the scale of it. And he said, you know, I think it was in a documentary. He said, I can't believe that. You know, I. You know, you write a song on the back on the back of a brown paper bag, and then it becomes this. You know, it becomes this this thing. And it was it was that was that was that was an amazing evening. There's times where you spend, you know, and you when you you know, I remember going for dinner with Ringo, and and we talked about it. And it's that intimacy, the 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 actual big events, the premiere, the, what people see, because everyone's on show don't mean as much in lots of ways. It's like it's it's a funny thing. I don't know. Oh, maybe it's just me. The other one's me. I'm just a miserable person. But it's funny. The, the big events like Grammys and Oscars and that sort of stuff. You don't. You feel privileged. You're there, and you feel incredibly honoured. You're there, but it's not what touches you as much as the as much as the intimacy and people saying things one on one to you. From what I've read, your dad was not anxious for you to be in music. That he didn't want to push you in that direction, didn't want to burden you. You were born right around the time, 1969. You were a little younger than me. Um, and by then, the Beatles, uh, it was close to over, if not over. It was after Abbey Road. As a young boy, what did your, did you have any inklings that you wanted to be in music then? I, uh, you know, what, what do you remember from that early, those early days? Yeah, no, I... <sighs> It was a funny thing. I, there was there was two pathways I was going to go down, and they were either going to be um, <laughs> design, car design, car design and physics were like the thing I was, you know, I was, I was, I almost, I, I applied for a course at one stage. I was going to become a car stylist. I loved. I always as a kid, I drew cars. That's what I did. Or music, and I had suddenly had found that I had this affinity for music, um, where I was good. I was never brilliant, but I was good at understanding chords and harmony and understanding composition. And, 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 you know, I went to a boarding school. I sort of had a strange, I was bullied at a boarding school when I first went there and they had these rooms full of pianos and I'd sit and play the piano. And I always say to, you know, my kids or other people's kids who try to get their kids to play instruments, they go, listen, you can't force them. They've got to be friends with the instrument. They've got to go to that instrument in order for, to find comfort and friendship. And that's the way I used to see it. And so, and then I became, you know, you change, you sort of, you know, you become an adolescent or, you know, early teen. And I started writing songs and writing music. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And I said to my dad, I've been being on a skiing holiday. And I said to my dad, he said, what do you want to do? And I, I was hanging around him because he was writing, he was writing some music for something. My comrade was. I said, I want to do what you're doing, dad. He goes, well, you can't. I said, why not? He goes, well, you're, just, you're just not good enough. And I was like, Actually, funny enough, which I am now, I was like, you bastard. I, was, I, was, I wasn't like, oh, dad, oh, maybe I'm not. I was like, I'll show you. I mean, that was my, that's been my So that thing. inspired, that like, inspired you. Yeah. I was like, you know, man, that's, and I think, I think, and I'll always try and be honest. I think, 
I think I probably wasn't good enough. I think he's right. I think there was also a thing with my dad where he was he was kind of concerned that if I wasn't very good, that would make him look bad. You know, there was, there was an element of that, um, that no one wants, you know, that was a no one wants their, it, it, and it's easy to say, but no one wants their son as a struggling musician, you know, especially if you're, especially if you're a, you know, there was, there was, there was an element of that, which I never really cared for. I, I started busking and he found out I was busking. I didn't tell him. I should learn to play the guitar without my parents having any idea because a kid had a guitar at school. And I didn't have a guitar, so I, 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 so and then I went from that to busking and borrowing this guy's guitar. And me and me and my best friend, who's still my best friend now, we used to go and play in the underground, and uh, it was great. I mean, it was it was fantastic. We started playing in pubs. We started playing in pubs when we we only knew three songs. I think we knew American Pie. Is she really going out with them by Joe Jackson? And there was another song. I can't remember what I can't remember what the other song was. It was probably a Bob Dylan song, Rolling Stone, probably, and. Uh, and I think it was no woman, no cry because we were because we because we were posh posh white kids and we had affinity for Bob Marley, and 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 yeah we and we just went out and it was it's funny looking back at it we had such uh, we wanted to entertain we would go on holiday myself and my friend Mike and we'd go and play in bars that's all we do we go to different bars take guitars with us and we get free drinks and free meals and and then my dad I think I think it was what happened with my father is that, A, he realized he'd lost the battle. He understood, understood, didn't really stand a chance. I think he understood that. But B, he started going deaf, and he needed he needed a pair of ears because he didn't want to tell anyone he was losing his hearing. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Your father, uh, Sir George Martin, uh, uh, passed away uh, not, too, uh, not too long ago. And at, at age 90, was it? 90, yeah, he was 90. 90. He passed away... Uh, uh, March of last year, yeah. and that's the funny thing was the first thing he uh, he was a he was a lovely man, and he was a beautiful man and very obviously incredibly talented. And he died, and we had the funeral. Took a week off, and the first thing I did, you know, I was asked to by the Beatles was to go in and remix this, and the first voice I heard was his. And he would scenario. we would sit together, and he would show me where he would lose his hearing. We'd sit with a you know, this is why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm head of sound for speaker company, I suppose, that I can hear in frequencies because I sit with, you know, middle C on a piano is one, is one, was one kilohertz. And my father lost, went, actually lost all the way down to middle C. So if you played a piano, he'd hear no notes in the, in the first half of the keyboard. So I'd be able to fill in the blanks and hear what he was missing, and then we'd be able to. I'd and I would whisper in his ear, not whisper in his ear, but obviously. But I, would, I would say he would ask me to the side, and I go. He'd say, "Are the violins too loud? Are are they in tune, etc., cetera, etc.?" Cetera. All of the high frequencies, and I'd give him information studios, and that's how I learned, I suppose. And it became it became a bonding thing for us. You know that that moment from being maybe fourteen to him saying, "You're not good enough," to then me being his ears and. And um, and him teaching me everything, and the payback for me for him, him teaching me everything was that I suppose that he worked way longer than he he felt that he could have done, and it was but it was purely born out of there was never a time where where he was such a good man and such a kind man and so compassionate that there was never a time where it became difficult for either of us. That first day when you realize that. 
you had met your dad's challenge and that you were good enough. Was there a particular moment when you were sitting with him in the studio at Abbey Road or, or at home where you, you felt that love and that respect, the love I'm sure you always felt, but where your relationship changed? No, he never really, I mean, he never, it's funny, he never really liked to, it used to drive my sister mad. My sister's lovely and she's, you know, two years older than I am and other people. He never really, really found it easy doing that. He, he always used to think I would get too cocky or too arrogant. I know, I think the love show made him realize that maybe I had some chops or maybe I knew what I was doing. Um, but we had conversations. It was, it was, it was, it was funny. We did have conversations, but very late on, he was, when he was dying, actually, he was, he was, you know, I knew he was dying. He knew he was dying. We were very close and I would spend nights lying next to him. And, and, you know, you want to be there for someone you want to be there. You don't, you know, you know, people say we're born alone, we die alone, but you, you want to try and help people on that journey, especially if you love them. And I remember I moved in, I rented the house next door to him with my wife and kids. And I remember one night thinking, oh, there's a question I've never asked him. I need to ask him this question. So I'd go in the next morning and he'd be, I'd go, I'd be I'm never quite sure he'd be alive or dead. <laughs> and I'd say, you're still here. And he'd go, oh, piss off. <laughs> so like, uh, we'd have this, we'd be, you know, that was the conversation. And he, uh, I said, dad, did you ever think you weren't very good at music? Because, and he goes, that's a strange question to ask me. I said, well, no, I've just been asked to do this film. And I'm just, my always thing is I'm not sure if I can do this. And then I end up doing it. And then I feel like I, it wasn't me that did it. And then it's a strange. And he goes, but, but he goes, I, I think you're brilliant. I think you're better than I was. I said, I don't think I was. And I don't actually think I was. I am now. Um, and he goes, but I goes, okay, but did you feel that? that? Do you feel that neurosis that I go through? And he closed his eyes and he opened them and he went, no, no, I always thought I was brilliant. And it was an interesting thing. And a lot of people, the very British reaction to be that is like, oh, God, that's a terrible thing to say. But actually, you know what? It was pure envy I had for him. Because the envy I had that you, which the Beatles had, and people don't realize it's about the Beatles, that they knew they were brilliant. There's no question about it. It wasn't like a, they weren't the they weren't the four humble kids from Liverpool. You can't do what they did without knowing without without. I see it as like riding riding a a a wave of confidence. It's like hitting that wave and just riding that wave. And you just you can do whatever you can do whatever tricks you want. You can do you are you are sorted. I think it hits you later on. I think my my father. God bless him, made some mistakes in life. He certainly did uh, as a businessman, but also creatively because of that, because of maybe not asking the question, am I not brilliant or is this the right thing to do? But it was pure envy I had when I heard him say that because of the suffering that I go through internally with things. Well, that's an incredible story. And, and your dad lived till 90, didn't he? He lived till 90, yeah. He lived till 90 and he died, you know. He died in his bed, looking at the looking out of the tree he loved, a view of a church. You know, he, yeah, he died. He had a, he had a, you know, he he was. It's it's it's. I miss him. I miss I miss him because we have the same sense of humor, and I miss, especially in times like now with the coronavirus. And you know, I'd love to. I, I do think about what he'd be thinking about 
you know, what his reaction would be to all this. Um, you know, things like that. You miss that. Let's go back to the initial idea of w- the brilliant work that you've done, and it is brilliant on the remasters. Um, well, they're kind of they're kind of it's it, it, it's it, they're not really first up. It's remixing, even though it's remixing in a purer sense, opposed to remastering. Okay, and the difference and the difference. I don't mean to correct you. Just no, so, please. But the difference the difference between remixing and remastering. Remastering is if you take a record, a two-track record, so a, a finished mix, and you then EQ that so it sounds better. So you're just taking, it's basically like, it's the icing on the cake. What I'm doing is remixing. So I'm taking the ingredients and then putting them back together and then putting the icing on the cake. It's a slightly different so remixing. So so the first one we did, well, obviously, uh, you know, Love was remixing. It was taking all the elements moving together. And then the first one was Sergeant Pepper. And I was very nervous about doing Sergeant Pepper. And, you know, I didn't really, I've always said to the Beatles, even with love, I said, listen, I don't want to be touching the records. That's not really my job. You know, my job is to do new things with your, try and push boundaries and get new audiences. Your records are your records. And um, they said, and there's a great way of working, actually. There's a very small, there's there's not many of us. There's the Beatles and then there's, um, there's a couple of people at Apple and there's myself. And I just said, well, you know, I'll try doing it. I'll try remixing. And then if I don't think it's any good, then let's not do it. And it, that's, and they went, yeah, okay, fair enough. That's, that sounds fair. And what remixing is, so, so, the, so that's a four track tape. So on, say, Little Help From Your Friends, I can remember this, I think, has, has drums, bass, acoustic guitar, and piano on a four track. That's the band. So that's Ringo. Paul, uh, uh, John, and George. I think I could be wrong, but it could be it could be two guitars, piano, and no bass. But anyway, say that's the band playing. That then that four track is then bounced down to another four track. So you have all the band on one track, and then vocals are added, and you know, oh, organs added, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. What we can do is purely by some poor guy Abbey Road, who's a genius, has to sit. And with a very speed tape machine, he links the two tapes up together so I can put the different generations of tape, two tapes together so I have more than four tracks. I go with the previous generation, and then I can remix the whole song to make it sound more open and to make it sound like you're closer. So I'm basically trying to peel back technology. If you think about, if anyone remembers cassettes, every time you record into a cassette, it becomes a little bit more distant. You know, you have tapists, etc. It's the same with the Beatles tapes. So I'm going to the, the first generations, which they've, bounced across and using them and it means that when i go to mix something i'll go mix, mix sergeant pepper i can mix it as though as get to get you close to the music and that's why people react in the way they've done and like it so it's it's, it's actually bringing it's actually peel, peeling back layers of george of, of john's glass onion if you like it's just getting you a bit closer it's that kind of thing so that's the process and then i bounce it between music is never how you remember it that's the thing that i find quite interesting you know we have our favorite records and and we shouldn't really listen to mixes we shouldn't listen to sound we should just listen to how it makes us feel um and i worked on a george harrison film called living the material world with uh, marty scorsese who's amazing obviously and olivia harrison phoned me up and said 
you know, Marty doesn't really like your revisionist approach to music. And I said, well, what does that mean? She goes, I don't really know. And I went, oh, I said, but it does mean you're fired. <laughs> I was like, okay, fair enough. So I went off and did something else. And then about a month later, she phoned me and she goes, why does the music sound so bad in the film? I said, well, I don't know. You fired me a month ago. And she goes, you need, you need to meet Marty. And so myself and Marty met in London. And I played him. I had, I had a button on a desk, which is basically A and B like the Pepsi challenge. And I played his favorite song was all things must pass. And I said, here we are. We were in a film. We were in, a, we were in Delaney, which is a film mix studios. And, uh, I said, which one do you like? And he goes, well, this is the one, this is the one that I remember. And of course the one he remembers, the one we remixed, and the one that he didn't like was the record that had been turned into the film version. Uh, because we fill in all the blanks, you know, the interesting about the way we react to sound is that, you know, we could be with a loved one in the car, listen to AM radio, not that exists anymore, but you know what I mean. And the song, the song sounds like the sweetest music you ever heard. And so I try and fill in the blanks. That's what I try and do. And I try and make the records how sound how they do in my head in a funny way. And then I go back and check that I haven't made a complete pig's ear of it, but that's the process. And you were also involved in the Ron Howard film um, about the Beatles touring years. That's right. That was that was that was the. I thought my father was still alive, actually. And I said, "I've got to go and do Beatles live." He goes, "Oh, good luck," he said to me. Rather you than me, I think he said, uh, because the the sound quality of those recordings is so bad, and so I had to throw all of my technical know how at it. And and I said to Ron, Ron Howard is one of the nicest men in the world. I mean, it's funny. It's like you know, I was I was in the canteen at Abbey Road. And uh, and I was queuing, you know, we queued with our little trays. And then I came, I came to sit down. And someone goes, "That's Ron. You were standing there. That was Ron Howard next to you." Oh, no, that's funny. I'm working on a, I'm working on a film with him, uh, but in about six months' time. And they went, "You should go up and say hello to him." And I'm not going to. I don't want to disturb him. Well, you will. You know, we'll. I'll see him. You know, I'm not one of these people who goes, "Hey, I'm, you know, I'm Giles Martin. Nice to meet you." I'm, you know, I, you know, I have. He's busy. He's with people. I went back to my room, and then about. An hour later, there's a knock at the door, and he goes, "Hi, excuse me, I'm Ron Howard. I'm working with you. I heard you in the building." And uh, and he said, "What do you want to get out of this film?" I said, "Well, I want to know what it's like to go to to go to a Beatles concert. That's what I want to know." And so that's what I'd want. To, and he goes, "Yeah, okay, let's do that." And uh, and and so we had a really good team, and that was fun. It was fun, but God, I'm pleased the screams have stopped in my head. Oh my goodness! So you go back, and the sound for those live performances was tough. And I've watched, have you seen the uh, film that Andrew Lou Goldham did uh, about the Stones' little tour in the early, yeah, yeah. early 60s, Charlie is My Darling? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the sound, the live sound was really tough. Um, yeah. That must have been a very difficult project to get that all to a place where you were comfortable. Well, my dad told me this. Actually, he, said, he said, the problem is, is that you go, something sounds bad through little speakers, it sounds a whole lot worse through big speakers. You know, the, the, this, this thing, the bad sound doesn't scale well. And so you're then dealing with a movie theater, for instance, and the sound of that. And, and, and yeah, it was, it was challenging. It was really, um, you know, you cheat as much as you can and you throw in as much technology as you can at it, really, in all honesty. There's no point being purist about, um, you know, the Washington concert because the actual sound is so bad. I always, I never, I never do things. I'd never throw in like other people's drumming or another drum kit or samples. And I, I never do that, but you, you try and do as much as you can Beatles wise with it. That's incredible. I guess um, they stopped touring 
three years before you were born, right? They stopped in 1966. Yeah, they stopped in 1966. Um, and uh, and you forget, actually, recently, though, I've remixed um, the Rooftop concert, uh, which is for, I'm working on this Let It Be film with Peter Jackson at the moment, which is going to be great. It's going to be amazing. Um, but yeah, I mean, you forget what a, that actually the interest, the rooftop concert shows what an amazing band they were, you know, what a great band. Uh, and, and you forget with the Beatles, they were the biggest touring band in the world. They were the first band to play stadiums. Uh, but because of what happened after they stopped touring became so big, you forget about that sort of stuff, which I think is quite interesting. So one of the things, just as a pure fan, that continues to amaze is that even after all these years, and some of it was in the in the Ron Howard film, Eight Days a Week, um, but there's still new material that seems to surface out of the archives at Abbey Road and, and other places. How much more is there that we haven't heard? Well, there's, I don't think there's much. I mean, there's Let It Be, for, for instance, a lot of Let It Be footage that we're going through right now. Um, there's 58 hours, I think, or 56 hours of, 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 of material. Um, there's very little else. There's always talk about Carnival, Carnival of Light coming out. Um, but yeah, there's not, uh, you know, there's, there's, really, there's really, I mean, we could probably dig, a, dig deeper into the albums like we're doing right now, you know, um, the thing that the thing that surprised me about um, about the reaction of Sergeant Pepper is the is twofold. It's one the desire that people have for this material. I mean, they you know, and then the other is how much it re, how much it resonates with with a young with a new generation, uh, which is amazing. Um, I think that I I always. You know, we have this. We have well, there's two guys called Mike Healy and Kevin Howler, and they do a lot of research um, for us. Um, but of course, they would like to put everything on. They've actually <laughs> we have arguments about stuff. I don't know the idea about putting out material for collectors. I like the idea of, of putting out material that people can listen to, um, and it's interesting. And so, and so that's the you know that's the way. Uh, that's the way we go about things. It was a, a great documentary. So did you see Echo in the Canyon that Jacob Dylan uh, led? No. So it's a wonderful film. And it talks about a part of California where they're in the 60s where just a lot of artists all gravitated towards Crosby, Stills, Nash and Neil Young, Brian Wilson. Um, and they talk about the Beatles all used to go there and hang out with Brian Wilson and Bob Dylan. And they talk about that Sergeant Peppers really came after they heard the Beach Boys and Smile and Brian Wilson, and that he was so revered as a genius. Did you yeah. have a look at stuff like that in terms of some of the stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think I think Pet Sounds was the trigger for for yeah, for Pet Paul. Sounds, Pet Sounds, correct? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, Brian Wilson was a genius. There's no doubt about you know God only knows, and I think I think you know good good vibrations would probably be on my Desert Island discs. Right. It's just such a extraordinary record. What is it's it? What is it about Pet Sounds that people who really know music hold that album and Brian in such high regard? I think it's you know what it is. It's the beauty of 
the simple nature of the sound of the music being born out of huge complexity. Um, the texture of what he's done is really, really difficult to make, but everything is there for a reason. It's quite lavish, but has an economy to it. It's a bit like a, uh, a master painter that paints with a, with a huge number of brushstrokes to create a picture of a flower, for instance, like, you know, Van Gogh sunflower flowers, for instance, it's that it's that it's the, it's the musical equivalent to that. It has vibrancy, it has energy, it has, it has madness. Let's, let's, let's be honest, but it, but it creates a beautiful picture. And then, and then as you dig deeper, you realize there's fragility there to it because of the way it's been created. And so, yeah, it just, it has legs basically. It's not, you can, you can hear the passion in the in 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 the creation of it in the same way that you know you can listen to you know james brown live at the apollo and you can hear the passion in the performance so you know it's a, it's a different type of passion but it's still there so i think that's why and let's talk about some of the other artists and things that you're working in some of the current projects i know you're doing a lot with in excess well yeah in excess yeah in excess i worked with when i was about 25 i worked with some of their records and uh I knew Michael, and then they asked me to remix um, "Kick" for them, uh, which I did. Which was great. we did it. And I've been working with new technology, which is Dolby Atmos. We, the first Dolby Atmos mix was actually Sergeant Pepper. We did in Dolby Atmos, um, just for it was one of those ideas I had. It's like you know, here's this new technology, Dolby. What 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 that is? Essentially, it's it's fully immersive audio, so you have ceiling speakers, speakers all around you, and it's 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 a bit like um, sitting on a vinyl record and melting through it. That's what it feels like to me. And uh, and then In Excess approached me, and so we I mixed them in, in Dolby Atmos and remixed them. So yeah, I've, I've been working with them. Um, and I and I do a number of things, like I'm, I'm thinking about, there's a couple of films which uh, which I'm thinking about doing, one musical, one, one non-musical. Um, I still work, um, I have these two kind of weird kind of, uh, consultancy type things, which based around, I guess I, I guess I have expertise. Uh, one is um, the speaker company Sonos, who I've been involved for six years now, which I'm entitled Sound Experience Leader, which basically I tune and advise them on roadmap and what they're doing as speaker company and and work with really really clever people. Actually, it's it's I really enjoy it. It's not they're not studio speakers but for the speakers that are liked by lots of musicians and artists you know they are um you know they the, the little play ones that was the first one i was involved with they use as reference speakers around the world by by studios um so yeah that that's fun and then i i'm i have this grand title of being head of audio and sound for universal music group and that's essentially so they own capital studios um abbey road studios and that's advising on technology, the way we're moving forward, the way um, that's it. We are we are in, we're in really good shape as far as if you love music now, and it's there's a whole lot of hoo ha about that because you have choice. There's a whole there's the whole there's the whole Neil Young, you know, Pono thing is like you can't listen to digital music, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I I'm not necessarily a believer in that. I think people should listen to what touches them. I don't think there's any rules. And let's face it, we don't actually listen to digital music. We listen to sound waves and they don't change to be honest with you we for some reason we think we, we think we listen to we think we listen to one and zeros and we and we're, we're really not that sophisticated um 
And and so advising on, I mean, I love the idea that, you know, I'm sitting here talking to you. I built a I built a studios in, you know, which I'm which I'm working at right now. I love I love the idea of working working a way where you can hear exactly what I'm hearing in this room. And so it's 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 a bit like you know remixing Sgt. Pepper, remixing the White Album, or getting people closer to the source material, getting people closer to the music, and get, getting people a bigger connection to the artists. You know, we should be in a stage where we could build speaker systems that have arrays that 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 put the artists in the room with you. All this sort of stuff. So so yeah, that's it's a hugely appealing. It's it's kind of I suppose it is kind of taking on my dad's legacy. That's what it is. But you know, you, you, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in lots of ways. And, you know, I love him the same way he does. I loved, you know, the, I love technology when it has a reason. When it, when, when I love technology that, that, that disappears, actually, that you don't think about, you know, you and I are talking to each other on an incredibly complicated device, you know, through all sorts of, you know, protocols and, but we're not, we're just communicating. And, I, and that's, that's, and music should be the same. And people shouldn't listen to people, as I say, shouldn't listen to mixers or technology or speakers or whatever. They should just listen to, you know, what the stuff they enjoy or what touches them. So you're a relatively young man. You've got an awful lot ahead of you. But as you look back on your career, both the work that you did with your father and what you've done since, um, is there something in particular, this is a tough question, is there something in particular that you're most proud of? And is there something in particular that as you look back, you'd say, I'd like another crack at that? Um, yeah, there, there, there's a couple of things. Uh, pretty, I'm pretty, my most proud of was probably the love show, funny enough. Um, I'm proud of Lossie. I was proud of Rocket Man. I'm really proud of Rocket Man. It's the first. It's the first big film I've done that won an Oscar and Golden Globe, and you know, so I can't really complain, I suppose. But, but, um, but, but I think the Love Show was a defining moment for me because it was, in lots of ways, it was me proving to my dad that I could really do it. Um, uh, lots of things I'd do again. It, you know, I was in a band. I was in a band, and we never became the band I wanted us to become. I should have put my foot down further. We would, we, you know, I wanted to become, I wanted to do pet sounds and the rest of the band wanted to be the Foo Fighters. And that never really was worked. Was that well. Velvet, Velvet Jones? Was that the band? Yeah, that was, that was Velvet Jones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the first, one of the first bands I produced were a band called Monorail. And they were this fantastic sort of Northern soul and guitar drums and kind of a Farfisa organ. And they all wore suits and they were violent and they drank and they, and they, but they had passion and I produced and they had full faith and trust in me and I produced their record and I never really did a very good job of it. And I always regret that because I think they'd have had a better chance with someone else. So yeah, that, you know, so, so yeah, that's like, listen, that's, don't ask what I do, do again. I, I, John, Lennon, John Lennon once said to my dad, they met, I think they met about three weeks before he died or a month before he died. And it was kind of a weird time because you know, John got in touch with him because he wanted to uh, almost not apologize, but just get back together again with my dad and reconnect. And, my, and he said, you know, I'd love, if we, I'd love for us to record everything again. It wasn't very good. My dad went, what? He goes, how about Strawberry Fields? He goes, especially Strawberry Fields. 
And there's there there are those, and I share the same birthday Sims. I remember the same sense, the same sensibility. I can I can't listen to things I've done. I just go, this could be better. So just to wind up, I guess very recently because of the coronavirus, for the first time in I believe it's eighty nine years, Abbey Road Studios had to close. Um, were you there on that last day, fairly recently when it closed, or around that period? And what were your thoughts walking out of those doors, not knowing when you might walk back in? Well, I left Abbey Road. I have a studios at Abbey Road, and uh, I left Abbey Road um, a week before it closed, knowing that it was going to close, um, because you know I have a my mom's ninety two and she lives about five minutes away, and we look after her and. You have to, you have to sort of, you have to look after your own in these crazy times and get out of London. Basically, I had the chance to be able to do that. Um, I don't think I. I think in the grand scheme of things, I don't think that Abbey Road stopping for a bit is going to hurt Abbey Road in any way. Abbey Road is this. It's a place where. I feel incredibly honoured. I, you know, you can never, you, you know, from the day where I mentioned before, you want to, you know, want you want to have your name on the back of a record as assistant. You can't believe that. I can't believe I get to walk into Abbey Road and say hello to people. I can walk down the corridor. I can walk down. I can, I can be there, and the place just breathes and lives music, and it'll breathe and lives music for as long as that building's there. No one can change that, and I think it's probably humming to itself right now during the coronavirus waiting for the next great musician to come through the door. As you know, it's it's still, you know, world-class, top of the food chain recording studio. And in a way, it's sort of a museum because there's no proper storage. So the piano where Lady Madonna was first played, the reel-to-reel where they recorded Magical Mystery Tour, it's just in the hallways. It's just all there. And I guess a lot, yeah, yeah. A lot of that equipment's still used, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. There's a reason why it's there. There's a reason why it's still there. You know, otherwise it would just be. I mean, a lot of the stuff. You know, and Mike Hedges, who's a you know well-known, actually great producer, he rescued the desk that was um, the the Abbey Road was recorded on because it was in a skip outside Abbey Road when they got rid of it. So you know, the, the reason why that stuff is there because it's because it, it's used. And yeah, and it's just like instruments. Instruments have to be played. You know, they they you can't just. You can't have a guitar and not play it, um, and you can't uh, tape machines and mixing desks and yeah. I'm trying to. I think we should um, incorporate them more into the texture of Abbey Road actually, because I think I think it's what it's the you know it's 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 inspiring a musician to to play through and record through this equipment. Um, it kind of makes you step up to the mark. Well, Giles, thank you so much. We fell a little short of seven hours. Uh, Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Stay safe and healthy as well. Okay, thanks a million. Good luck with everything. Good luck and stay safe. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit advertisingweek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. An original music was by Ian Levy.